Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What you're saying is exactly the truth, though. That, and that's the way I always looked at it was, you know, I, I started praying to God and believing in something. But, you know, the Hindu guy I know down the street that's a super peaceful dude, has an amazing restaurant that I eat at, and his kids yes. are great, and he treats me and my daughter like yeah. family when we walk. What, I'm supposed to judge him because he believes in something completely different than what my Catholic church, no, n- I'm not going, I'm not doing that. Jim Brewer. 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 Again. How you doing, Mike? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So today I'm having this guy, and this is, this is how this starts. And this is what I tell everyone. You can reach out to me um, on Instagram if you direct message. A lot of times I check those messages. You know, if you just write, hey, man, I love you, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, I'll give you the thumbs up, and thank you for your kind words and all that. So today's guest... Um, there's a lot to him. It started off with this. Hey, Jim. Uh, huge fan, uh, always. I used to see you a bunch at the Comedy Connection in Faneuil Hall. I worked there as a door guy back in the day, and I literally used the Comedy Connection as a networking platform for me to launch my career as a filmmaker and actor um, with some unique success coming where I come from. Um, I hear you on other podcasts, and I hear you know, your, your mindset on things. And I really appreciate you. And I really appreciate the way you speak out about things. I just heard that, uh, Rob Schneider is going to be on your podcast. He's actually always doing his post-production over at the studio I work at in Los Angeles, Sugar Studios. And my good friend, Paul, who's my editor is also Rob's editor. I'd love to share with you a little bit more about me, um, and maybe connect with you in the future, my man. Uh, maybe, maybe get involved in some things together. Uh, you know, again, appreciate you and your words and uh, just being you. Um, then I got another one. Jim, I would be more than honored this is later. to do a podcast with you. And I'd love to potentially involve you in some of the things that I have going on if you were interested. And I think you would because I think we're on the same page with a lot of things. Um, and a lot of the content that I'm creating and putting out um, is touching on these things, especially Big Pharma. Uh, my story ties back to me being one of the original Oxy Bandits, Robin Pharmacies for OxyContin, had a near-death experience, turned my life around, wrote a movie about it called Oxymorons that was on Netflix, and so the story goes. I'd love to talk more about it for sure. Uh, my info is above. Let's connect. So we kept going back and forth, back and forth. Um... What's going on, Jim? Last thing I want to do is be a haunt, but below I'm going to attach my EPK just so you can learn a little bit more about me. Like I said, huge fan, known you since the Comedy Connection days when I was just a door guy there. I fought my way out of the f***ing gutter, bro. Um, I'd love to come on the podcast, like you said, 
and uh, talk about shop, talk about the Oxycontin epidemic and how that was like one of the early phases of dumbing down the fucking population with the pharmaceutical drugs to where we're at now, man. And your platform's got a great audience for me to kind of talk about the shit I know. We can go over it first and stuff. Reach back, hit me back either way, even if it's not going to work out, just so I know, man. And take care. God bless you. And Johnny was super persistent. Kept send, sending me all his um, clips and all that. Hey, Jim. Finally. Happy New Year, man. I hope your 2024 is uh, kicking and ass already out. for you. We keep going back and I forth. just wanted to revisit what we spoke about back in September. Yes. Potentially uh, doing the podcast with finally. you. Finally. We finally got him. Um, I don't I don't remember him as the door guy at but clearly he was Faneuil Hall, but I'm sure he'll, I'm sure he'll uh, remind me of some of those things. And he actually has gone on to do pretty incredible human stuff, uh, which is helping a lot of human beings. So with that said, this is Bastin, Bastin Johnny Hickey. What's up, Johnny? What's up, Jim? Thank you, my man. Appreciate you big time. Yeah, I just relate to guys like you. I feel like I feel like guys from Boston, and I feel like guys Boston and Long Island are very, in my opinion, very very similar because it's very, it's very real, raw, honest, blue collar, just thick of the thick of human, just beating the snot out of life and trying to get by, and a lot of us slip in the cracks and some of us go on and do things, but. You do you do have this crazy journey. How did the comedy connection re- refresh my memory? Okay, so um, we'll go back to you. I remember protecting your dad from people handing him drinks. You came to me. Oh, oh my God! Yeah. You were, oh, it's me. That's me. Oh yeah. my God! I gotta find the footage of this. I just mm-hmm. saw this. So good. Yep. First, you're gonna say Johnny, because then I'll tell everyone. So I, so I was there for all that. And I remember, I think he was like, he was, you're trying to either not let him drink too much or he was in sobriety at the time. And so I, that was like my fir- one of the first shows I worked with you. So I was just a door guy at the Comedy Connection when I came out of my street life. And what happened was I would, you know, my dream as a kid was to be an actor, a filmmaker. That was my ambition is, you know, all the way until about 17. Yeah. My early adolescence completely deterred me from ever thinking I could be sitting here doing any of the things that I do now. Right. Uh, fast forward through all, you know, all this crazy stuff that happened to me when I was trying to like audition and do things and, and get involved in the industry. I was like, I, I can't, this is never going to work. I have to get into a network. And I remember my cousin, Mike worked at the comedy connection years before that. And he had pictures on his wall of like, you know, him and, Jim Carrey, this guy, that all these com- yeah, famous well, all comedians. the guys that made it, yeah, yeah, and he was connected to them. He had like a personal relationship with some. I said that's the only way that I'm going to be able to like network. So my connection into what I do now, which has really nothing to do with comedy, but is from the comedy connection, right? I, I connected with James Gandolfini through a comedian that was friends with him on my first screenplay. Lenny Clark connected me with Dennis Leary's company. So all these things. Bill Burr became a friend of mine and supported me. And all these, Patty Ross plays my mom in my first film. So everything that kind of revolves around what I do now stems from that $12 an hour door guy job at the Comedy Connection. Wow. And and, and the one thing that, that Johnny's talking about is, uh, so I had my 
I want to say my dad was mid eighties, some somewhere around there, maybe low. And and basically, I had a, I had a tour bus, and I was bringing the bus back to New Jersey that night, and I had to fly out early in the morning, so I really needed some sleep. And my father couldn't really. He's he's he would drink, and he'd have to pee every 15 minutes he needs help i think i think at that time he just started struggling with walking and all this stuff so i bring him to the comedy connection and i tell people like johnny i'm like listen my father all he does everyone thinks he's adorable but he keeps asking for beer and everyone gets a beer and then guess what i'm dealing with a 200 pound uh, 225 wasted 85 year old that can't walk. And I got to get up if every 10, 15 minutes to lift him up, get him to the toilet. Then he pisses all over. I'm dry heaving. I got to clean the toilet, which is what happened that night. So we, we actually, I think, I don't know if it was my, uh, one of the guys I was with that started, someone was feeding him drinks. I think and, everybody was, I think it was like, you know, oh, it's Jim's dad, and he asked for a drink, and everyone was like, here you go, you know, free drinks. Right. So now we carried – were you part of carrying him down the stairs? We had to carry him. so, yeah. We mm -hmm. had to carry him down the stairs. I had a camera guy. He's howling with laughter. We had to get him across the street to that uh, hotel. Millennium Hotel. Yes. Millennium. The, right. And then even mm -hmm. there, I was going to get a, a, a bag cart – and put him on the cart because he he conked out 20 feet past the comedy connection as so we're trying to hold up this old man and i'm gonna i was gonna oh as i pissed i was i was trying to keep my shit together but then i have footage of me walking him to the toilet in the hotel at like three in the morning i was so fucking pissed the whole bus ride home I pain, you know, the bus is shaking as when I gotta get. Oh my god. I remember that day like just it was one of the funniest days ever. Uh, but I just I remember I was so pissed. I forgot I forgot about it. And then when uh Margaret reached out to me and Margaret reached out to me and was like, Hey, we're gonna get you on the show and stuff. I just started going in my memory, you know, of like detailed things of the comedy connection. Cause I remember I remembered like Holland Williams was at the Kowloon up on Route One. And I thought it was you. And I was like, no, that was Holland. And they were going to like mug him. And I had to walk him to his hotel across Route 1 because it's kind of seedy up up there, up that end yes. of the North yes. Shore. Yeah. So I had to like, me and my brother had to walk him over to uh, his hotel. And then I and then I remember the thing with your dad. I was like, oh, they were trying to give him the booze. And we had to stop everybody that night. He was losing his mind. Yeah. Losing his mind. I was going to kill him. That and the women. I'm like, this guy, I'm going to knock his ass out. I'm going to knock his ass out. Uh, so, Johnny, then you... I was really intrigued too when you told me about the whole uh, drug thing. So when you, when did you leave Boston, or are you starting to make films there, and then you and then you head out to LA? What what, what happened there? So when you, I was yeah. So when I was in a, at the Comedy Connection, that prior to that, I had been. That's when, at the Comedy Connection was my like that was the only job I could get that I was happy with, and then I was going to community college for like media and video to try to learn the aspects of like, you know, getting into that, that world. Yeah. And I was, but I was writing this screenplay in the back of the comedy connection every day. And that's why the, the mother in Oxymoron's name is Patty because Patty Ross, the Boston comic would get up on stage 
And I was like, man, if I ever make this movie, she's playing my mom. She's so Boston. And sure enough, she ends up playing my mom in the movie. And so I was writing in this notebook in the back when, you know, when you were performing and everyone, yeah. I was always back writing these notes, right? Writing, had no idea what I was doing. And I met Lenny Clark, the comedian from Boston. Lenny, Lenny Clark. Let me tell you something, Johnny Hickey. Lenny so he Clark. just played my... So he just played my dad in my most recent film that's not released yet, that's releasing this year. And Lenny read what I, like this 20 pages I had on a notebook and was like, let me get somebody to help you. So he connected me with someone at Apostle Pictures in New York, which was Dennis Leary's company because they're yep. buddies. Yep. Sir and this guy, and Dennis, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So they taught me, someone at that company taught me, this guy Doug taught me how to professionally write a screenplay, like, you know, 80 to 120 pages, the first 10 you know, exteriors and all this stuff that I would have to go to Emerson to learn. And, you know, fast forward while I'm working at the Comedy Connection, I now have a feature length screenplay and I'm, you know, showing it to, you know, different people and people are like, oh my God, this is so, and it was basically taking all the trauma and negative shit I went through with Oxycontin and, and my experiences with that and drugs and turning it into a story to help show the collateral damage of like what this drug at that time was doing to people. And people was still, even still to this day, some people are blind to it, which amazes me. But at that moment, like people didn't understand that Oxycontin was heroin and a yes. pill form. They yeah. just thought it was a painkiller. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. You know, FDA approved, you know, they said it won't make anybody addicted. Mm. And sure enough, you you know, where I'm from, Charlestown, part of Boston, more bank, bank robbers per square capita than anywhere else in the country. You come from a, a place where all your uncles and your dads and everything that's you know they're criminals you know that dates back to history of, of there's reasons why to that this state prison was there and that's why irish veterans moved there because their family members were in the prison so all these prison mentalities came in the ira funded the you know the criminals of the town with guns to go get money and rob banks for them and that's why movies like the town exist wow so you know, if all our dads were dentists, we'd all be pulling teeth. That we, we always say, you know, but they weren't. They were bank robbers and criminals, so scheming, how to hustle, how to make money. And I fell out of, of course and got into, you know, the street life. And there were these pills going around that were like 50 to $80 a whack people were paying for them. Like, what is that? I don't know. I was a raver. I was doing like ecstasy and messing around with different stuff. But I was never really an addict, you know. I was just partying right. and, and caught up in the caught up in the mix of things and started giving people these pills and selling these pills and robbing pharmacies eventually to get these pills to people. And when I ended up in jail, I realized that, holy shit, this stuff is turning everyone, everyone started coming in within a three year period and went out on heroin. No one was ever on heroin. No one, like in Boston, nobody did heroin. Some veterans did it that, you know, came home from the war years ago, but heroin was frowned upon on the streets always, you know, even with like the mobs and the, and it's like, why is everyone on heroin? And it was, you know, the next best thing, if not the better thing than the Oxycontin. Mm. And then I did my research and was like, wait a second, this is an opiate based pill. It's basically 13 Percocets and a time release that you just lick off. So you're literally the equivalent to shooting two bags of heroin, taking one of these pills. So I decided to, you know, make a story to expose this. And See, it's interesting because I remember, uh, I remember that time and I, I had a family member had issues with their back very young. He was very young. And the next thing you know, he was addicted to Oxycontin and he had to go away to, um, uh, like, a 
like a halfway house up. It was oh. like, oh, you either go to jail or you can try to make it at this halfway house. And he went to the halfway house, which I also believe was uh, in maybe Connecticut or something like that. And that that was one of the things I saw too back then. I'm like, wait a minute, we, it's everyone's on oxycontin. They're they're passing around heroin. They're passing around heroin, and they're pushing this as the new as the new cure for everything. And everybody was getting addicted. And then it started hitting the streets and people stealing for it and all that. Um, Johnny, did you ever look at? I just heard something interesting. Um, I was talking to a veteran from Afghanistan and he was saying, you know, I started reflecting and he goes, you know, I joined because I bought into the whole nine 11 thing. And he goes, and then I was over there and I found myself really just protecting the opium fields because they had us protecting the opium, the opioid fields. And that made me, and then I made me go, I, I find it extremely disturbing, uh, extremely interesting that during that time that we went to Afghanistan, which I'm not sure anyone knows why we really went into Afghanistan, the biggest opioid, I believe, farms in the world was that Afghanistan? And we also had, and I could be wrong by saying this. Um, I please look it up. I don't count on what I say. One of the worst heroin times we ever had in America. So how, and I don't, I just reflect on that and I go, how are we in a war on quote terrorism? We're having the worst opium time in America, and those are the fields we're protecting in Afghanistan. And, th- and that and that also goes into my whole rage against, you trust this government? You trust our pharmaceutical? You trust Fauci? You really, I, I mean, that, that's how easy it is to manipulate humanity and get them sick and get them drugs. Well, I, I started questioning everything as I moved. Like, at first it was just about, Okay, these this particular pill is bad, and this company that's and I used to I was writing the CEO of Purdue Pharma and telling him I was going to show up to his house. I was out of my mind because I had lost so many people at this point. I lost my sister, my best friend, my cousin, and then it, all the way up until uh, a week ago, I think I tagged you in the in the post where I mm-hmm. went to the cliff that I was thrown off of, and that was where I kind of changed my life. Yep. And that week, you know, right after the holiday, my other friend who had been clean and in Florida and, and in like the, the drug rehab like world of like helping addicts get clean relapsed after the holidays with a family member and he's dead because oh, oh, now wow. it's Russian roulette. Now it's fentanyl. Now you don't get the pills. Now you don't even get heroin. Now it's just, you know, China pushing fentanyl into the country. And when you talk about the, you know, the poppy fields that we were protecting. I did had a friend that did two tours, two tours in Afghanistan, Iraq, told yeah. me the same thing. And what I didn't realize until I did research was like Johnson and Johnson, who makes our fucking baby shampoo, was invested in all these poppy fields over there. And I went down the rabbit hole and started going deeper and deeper. And I was like, wait, why did the FDA, you know, who we trust to and, and before, like really now after COVID to for you know, this awakening to kind of happen where a yes. lot of people are starting to realize and 
thank like, God. Oh, wait, Kellogg was a psycho and put stuff in food to like make boys not boys kind of thing. It, you have to it. it it sounds so outdated. It's people it's that they it's, it's Johnny. It sounds like uh, something out of the Avengers, and and I keep telling people like it is. It, it you don't believe that these crazy evil beings exist? They do, and they run everything you trust, and the reason they why evil finds ways to manipulate, and they. Find the platforms where you trust them. They'll find the church. They'll find the school. They'll find the FDA. They'll find pharmaceutical, and they and they'll find your uh, politics, government, police. They find everything. Criminals are brilliant. They're on a drive. They're brilliant. They don't care. They don't care. And people think just because they have a suit and tie or they're a specialist or they say they're from the pharmaceutical or the FDA, oh, I'm just going to trust them. And that's the worst thing you can do in any society moving forward at the at this moment in time. So if can I ask you, how do you, you clearly had an addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, you find, how do you sober up from that how do you because your your numbers i i, I would assume the success rate is less than 10 percent from what i've seen like, with heroin it's like it's like two percent is what it is with opiates how do you with, how do you survive that two percent and and do you still once in a while like ah, i can just so i i look at things First of all, now like uh, apples and oranges to me because the war on drugs is a bunch of bullshit. As we of know, course, right? so I'm very cannabis friendly. I smoke weed. I was smoking weed the whole time. I wrote oxymorons, and I couldn't even tell people because I was like, "Oh, they're gonna judge me and think that right. I'm still on right. drugs." But right, it like drinking booze is worse than smoking a doobie. I'm a hundred percent. And and what we feed children in high schools and middle schools even is that it's all one thing. It's drugs are bad. So now. You got kids that maybe want to smoke weed and they're going to ignore all this other stuff that you're telling about stuff that will kill them mm -hmm. because you're lumping cannabis in with heroin and coke they've been and doing that they've been doing that forever they've been doing that right. forever so, johnny yeah so what happened to me was i was watching people die one and i was watching people become heroin addicts and i got out of i did three years and locked i locked up for three years got out <laughs> went right back Went, yeah, went right back went right back into the streets, right back into, you know, getting in trouble and doing crazy things and just wanted to, you know, give up because like what else was there for me to do? I I, I had no hope in my in my in my soul at all. Yeah, you already so lost, went, so why not already why lost? Not, yeah. So I went to a hotel party one night in Quincy Mass, which is like south of Boston, at hotel party. The night before that, I was in a stolen car. That had no reverse and we had to push the car out after my friend stabbed some kid in the face with a heineken bottle 10 times like th oh. this is the life i was living pray i'm jim like oh like like i look back at things and i'm so blessed that i could take all that negative stuff and turn it into the positive stuff that i do now but when i look back at the stuff that i was involved in oh. even like walking you to your hotel like you would have never known those things about me that no. i th those things happened before i met you yep and and so a fight erupted in this hotel room and the hotel security came up and they're like, listen, everyone out, the cops are coming. So everybody runs out to this parking lot, but we're in another town, me and two, my brother and one of the friends. So there's three of us and 
they call their friends and 13 kids show up in carloads in this parking lot of the Marriott Hotel. My friend gets, he's crazy. The kid, same kid that stabbed the kid in the face with the bottle. He runs into the melee of like these kids that want to fight us and just yeah. starts swinging. There's no way we're winning this fight. Like, right, but he's, all, you know, he's, but he's nuts. Know, he, this kid, this kid, he's still alive too, and I don't know how to this day. He is out of his mind. Yeah. And so I'm in this position where my brother's younger than me at the time, and I'm like, if I don't jump in and help him, I'll never, in the streets, I'll never live this down. You know what I mean? I'll, you know what I mean? I'm going to have beef with him. If I'm leaving him to get jumped, I'm going to be the kid that ran away. So I was like, probably going to get my ass kicked, but I'm going to go in, you know, and swing it. So I went in swinging and I woke up seven days later in Boston Medical Center. Wow. They yep. stomp you so out? They hit me in the, someone hit me in the back of the head with a, like a rock or a brick. Yeah. I remember I went into the circle and I looked for the biggest dude there. Like who's, right who's the you. alpha? And right. I, I soccer punched him and I got him good. And he wobbled down. Yeah, And for maybe three seconds is the last thing I remember is like standing with my hands up and just like looking at them, like who's next. And then out cold, like, I don't remember a single thing. Um, so what happened was they hit me in the head with the brick. And then when my friend was getting jumped on the ground, I remember he was holding on to like a shrub. Yeah. Like, why is he holding on to that? I couldn't understand. It was so fast. Like, why is he, why isn't he getting up and fighting? And he was holding a shrub, his white t-shirt was all of a sudden filled with blood. And he was on the shrub because they were trying to drag him off the edge of this cliff. The Marriott Hotel at the time didn't put a fence up. They built them on these quarries where there's a five-story drop down into this industrial where, where I was in that video. And so they threw me off. After they got me on the ground, they dragged me, threw me off the cliff. These wow. Few- yeah. So I wake up seven days later uh, out of a coma. I am pissed in the bag. I got my knees in traction, dislocated my hips, separated my pelvis, my bladder exploded, tore my urethra. Was told I'd never walk again, never be able to use the waist down again, um, and I was on the morphine six-minute trip, which is heroin. You know, you right, know. right. Every six minutes, every six minutes, I get to hit this button, feel this warm sensation of. Now I've never done heroin. I never stuck a needle in my arm. I always I was always able to get pills. Right. However, I had to get pills. I was never at that level of addiction, uh, not being able to get them however I got them sure so I never you know and, and that was my biggest fear though was becoming a heroin addict I, I killed my sister I never wanted to do that oh wow so I would hit this button and it would it was so different than taking a pill it was this warm feeling and it would, would kill the physical pain but it was so temporary which mm. is why it's every six it would, the physical pain would go away very briefly but what bothered me the most when I would hit that button was the fact that I did not care how I got where I was at that moment and that I would never walk again and never be able to use the waist down and have children or anything. So I ripped the morphine out of my arm and I was having these crazy nightmares too, like crazy Super things going vivid on. and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I, 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 one of the biggest dreams was I was dying of thirst and I woke up in the hospital and that was because I was being fed through the tube, I believe. You know, I was being fed through the tube and I had these these Haitian nurses and the third shift nurses that were like really mean, they were, they were really kind of like, for whatever reason, they were ruder than the first shift and second shift nurses. They were awful. Yeah. And one of them was extra mean to me and she wouldn't wash me. She was supposed to wash me and she wouldn't wash me in the mornings because I couldn't wash myself. And so I woke up and I'm like, I just need to get out. And I ran out of the, the hospital, even though I couldn't run and my legs were working. So you don't, it's like that dream where you can fly almost, you know? Yeah. Went into the 7-Eleven, the store 24 at the time was what it was across the street. And there was one chocolate quick in, in the in this case in my dream. 
and I opened it and it was ice cold. And that's all I wanted was that chocolate quick. And I grabbed it and I went to drink it and it melted in my hand. And there was that nurse was behind it, all demonic looking, laughing at me, sent like a demon, the crazy. Right. Right. So I wake up and I rip the morphine out. I'm like, I don't want this. I don't, you know what I mean? This is yeah. doing it. I don't want no painkillers. I don't want to bleed. And I'm like, they're not going to give me this when I go home, whenever they let me go home, right. I'm going to be a heroin addict. And Jim, I tell you, there's this guy next to me in the bed, in, in the room with me. And he's in, the, in like, there's like a curtain between us and he's talking to me and I move the curtain. Now this isn't a dream. This is something I vividly can remember. Like it, it like, like walking you to the hotel and the story with your dad, that, that it's not a dream to me, this. Right. And he's there for like an abscess tooth or something crazy. And he's going in to get it removed surgeon. He's like, you need to pray. He's like, you need to pray to God. Even if you don't believe you need to do it. And I promise you, if you do this, Johnny, you're going to get everything back. You will be able to walk. And, and I'm like, how do you even know? Like what my, and he's like, oh, it's on the board right there. They take this guy away for his surgery. Yeah. I now I'm off the morphine. I have probably like seven different medical professionals, doctors, nurses, practitioners telling me I need to be on Demerol or something. With my injuries, I need to be on a painkiller. And Correct. I say, absolutely not. And I have the documents to prove that I went cold turkey in the hospital for 30 days after I pulled the morphine out that day. So I went cold turkey with every excuse in the world to take painkillers and left with no painkillers. The guy that was next to me that told me to stop praying never came back. To the room and i said what happened to the guy that was here what does he, you know did you know ladies like what are you talking about what guy we don't do doubles in the room so this guy allegedly was never that i vividly remember not as part of my dream as part of reality was never in the room and so when that happened it wow it i started praying i started praying so whatever you believe whatever god or whatever it is that people believe in call it what you will i don't force my thoughts and my beliefs on anything but i started praying and when I tell you, uh, so 30 days went by, they wanted to keep me in the hospital. And I was like, you know, this place is a joke. They're trying to keep me on the painkillers. The nurses are horrible. BMC, Boston Medical Center is in like, it's so bad. It's like the gunshot wound clinic. It's just like not the place to be in the middle of the winter. This was December. Mm. Now the whole month of December I was there. Christmas was gone by. I just wanted to get home with my family and, and try to do it for my mother's couch. Went home and I just manifested, Jim. I prayed and I in my mind, I knew how to walk again. So I would get a walker and I would drag myself and I would drag that leg that they said wouldn't work. And what they said was because my pelvis separated and I had all these other injuries, like when my bladder exploded and stuff, they couldn't wire it back together because my white blood cell count would notice it as an infection. And it was like a 70 something percent chance that I would die if they wired my pelvis back together. So my pelvis would heal like this. And the best result probably be that I'd walk on those stilts, like arm stilts kind of. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, God, whatever you believe and call it what you will, my pelvis went back to normal on its own. I can break dance now. I can do a handspring <laughs> now than I was then. I'm no bullshit. You're in a mosh pit now. Yeah, right? So the doctor, one doctor, this guy, Mike Nerney, I'll never forget him because he was cool when he was down to earth and not all programmed, was like, well, he's like, miracles happen. And he's like, just like muscle has memory, I guess some, he goes, I guess sometimes bone can too. He's like, your pelvis somehow... And they couldn't explain it, you know, they could not explain how my pelvis just went back to its original form. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let me ask you this. So when you're, all right, the guy tells you to pray, right? And so are you now once in a while, are you, are you diving into a faith thing or are you just like you're, you're when you feel the meat, like where are you at? What, what, what at this time? Now or at that moment? Now that, or at that, that moment? Mo- that moment. Are you, I need to read a Bible. I need to blah, blah, blah. What, what, whatever. What exactly are you doing? Are you doing it every day? Uh, what, what I would do every day is I would in the shower, literally after I would like wash my ass, I would get down on my hands and knees once I could get down on my hands and knees again when I wasn't in my bed no more. And I would just thank this God. And to me, even still to the, now to this day, what I how I feel about it is it, it, God to me is what God is to me. God to you is it's w- one thing, you know. Right. I'm not going to force. I don't. I don't right. put on a religion. I'm not I'm a Bible thumper. But way. I believe that there is something above and beyond what we understand, whether it's in our own subconscious existence, whatever it is that Jim believes in, whatever it is that Johnny believes in. That is what it is. But if you don't have something to believe in and something to talk to in your in yourself, oh. then or outside of yourself, then then you're doomed. I, and, I highly agree. I highly and agree. How can I not believe in whatever God I was praying to? You know, I grew up Irish Catholic. You know, right. it's obviously it was all the stuff that happened in the churches and stuff that made you be like, uh, oh, and question your religion. And then you do, you know, you do your due diligence and you, and you research religions and history and all that stuff, and you kind of like, uh oh, I don't know what to believe. Well, yeah, I I always thought after watching that growing up, because I all had, all my friends were either Irish Catholic uh, or Italian Catholic, and one German Protestant. Uh, but what I noticed was as time went on, you know, these guys believe that, and this one believe it. I I thought that was one of the greatest secrets of the world is cult, whatever the devil, a a man who's looking to manipulate for power. They somehow formed organizations to keep you from the true power that we have inside us, whether it's Jesus or whatever you, whatever you want to, it's it's energy, whatever you want to, Manifest it, yeah. whatever energy, whatever. All these all these quote religious things are created as a block to get you to the real source. Like I don't need a guy with a with a funky hat and a robe to tell me how to get there. I push him away, go right to it. So that's what I did. Yeah, and if you really think about it, let's let's say let's say it wasn't called the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? This is, no, we're just talking off subject just for a second. What a great way to control society! So a couple of us are going to pretend we're really, really awesome. We're going to get like the 
We're going to paint the place nice and play organs. And then we're going to get you to tell me all the worst things you did. And now I get to hold you through a little bit of guilt. And I also know where you stand, who I can manipulate, who I can talk to for money, who I can talk to, who I can uh, sexually seduce, who I can take advantage of because their parents would never uh, buy into that I went after their kid. It's a genius, dark, deceptive uh, plan. In my opinion, I don't want to piss off all the Catholics, but at the no, end of the true. day, you know, it's true. It's that's the, what you're saying is exactly the truth, though, that and that's the way I always looked at it was, you know, I, I started praying to God and believing in something. But, you know, the Hindu guy I know down the street, that's a super peaceful dude, has an amazing restaurant that I eat at. And his yes. kids are great. And he treats me and my daughter like yeah. family when we walk what I'm supposed to judge him because he believes in something completely different than what my Catholic church. No, and I'm not going, I'm not doing that. Same, same that, thing. It, yeah. So, yeah doing to us right. It's the same thing that they're doing to us right now, just in society, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. It's the same thing. Same exact thing. If you take, if you take a Hindu, a Muslim, uh, Jewish, I haven't, whatever. At the end of the day, Anything. it's peace, beauty, understanding, um, so, okay. So now you're, you're thanking God and you're working your way back. There's, is there temptations during this time in the first? Oh yeah. I wasn't, you know, I would say alcohol was probably my biggest like thing where like I would still drink and I wasn't an alcoholic by any means, but I would be like at the comedy connection. I'd get into fights. kind of one of the things I had a lot of anger built up in me at that, even though I had changed my life and I wasn't on drugs anymore. I was still struggling, you know? Yeah, yeah. I had, dream, I had a dream and something I wanted to accomplish that was the hottest thing for anybody to do, make a movie yeah. and be successful with it, you know? Yeah. So I had I had nothing else to fall back on, you know? How long am I going to work at the Comedy Connection for as a door guy? Or even when I was, you know, booking my own events up at the Kowloon, it was, you know, it was far and few between that would go and, and succeed the way I, I was able to, so... I was always, that's one moment when you ask, like, was I, where I've been in a million of those things yeah. where I got, okay. you know, you know, and I even think, in LA. yeah, I think it's important for people to know that. Cause they'll sit there and I go, like, I, I just had a question today. You know, we, we had someone in our house for a couple of years that was, you know, out of whatever it, they went through some stuff. And this person asked, how did you do with this, this relative coming straight out of a, a bad situation. And I'm like, yeah, no, they're great now, but no, there was, there was a lot of up and downs. I had to threaten them. I, I, I a physical, I threw a chair at, I mean, it was, I had to confront work. I had to go, go to other people's houses, like get your shit. Let's go. You shut the, I'm not give. It was, it was, uh, it's not easy. It's not an easy oh. road. So when people see this, they, they have to understand, you're still struggling at that time, even though you're on the better path. This is so, wow. So now, what is it? Late 2000, like teens or whatever, where you kind of first launch your first- 2000, Yeah. 2010. So 2010 is when I finally put all the pieces together. When I say all the pieces, I saved money on my own. And then I, my friend David ran this media company in Las Vegas 
in, but right before the media company, remember Frank Centarelli? Yeah. From, okay, so Frank. Frank. So he, so he's in the Sopranos at the time and doing events. Still, the Sopranos still going. He brings my screenplay and somehow it ends up in James Gandolfini's lap. So James Gandolfini calls me and says, "I want to talk to you about optioning your screenplay, Oxymorons." Wow! And of all places, he wants to. We meet at the Kowloon, not because of the comedy relationship there. He likes Chinese food, and it's like you know one of the top Chinese food restaurants in the East Coast. You okay. know, at the time, yeah. this day probably. And so I bring James Gandolfini to the Kowloon, who already have a relationship with me. The owners there because of the comedy connection had bought them out for two years, at least out that room, mm-hmm. and they were doing shows up there, and I worked there. So they love me because I'm bring. They love when celebrities come there and stuff. So I bring in James Gandolfini. I sit down at a table with James Gandolfini, which is like probably one of the most surreal moments of my life. Mm. And he wants to take oxymorons as, as a screenplay is at that moment and make it. He wants to option it. He's going to give me 15 points on the back end, which equals nothing. You know, when, when, once you learn how this how the game works. But he's also going to give me 50 grand to, you know, as a payment for the script to option it. Okay. Which at the time to me was that's a, a lot of money. Time. Me for a kid from the streets that you know what I mean. 50 yeah, grand, especially 50 I mean, grand. I mean, if you look at it in just logistics, how long it took mm-hmm. you to write it and blah blah. Hey, it's fifty grand. Mm-hmm. That's that's. But I but I lived through it, and what he didn't want was me to be in the movie, mm-hmm. and he was going to take it and make it about kids in Hell's Kitchen and not Charlestown, my neighborhood, where these characters and any other screenplay I've ever wrote since then. 50 grand, take it. I'll, I'll make an, I'll write another one. This was my first screen. This is my baby. And I uh, looked at James Gandolfini, this table. And I was like, you know what, man, I believe in fate and destiny. And I don't, I don't want to do that. And he, James Gandolfini laughed at me when I said fate and destiny, he laughed at me at a table full of guys and was like, good luck with fate and destiny kid. That's what he said to me. Wow. And, uh, and I, yeah, I was blown away by it. I was like, what the? I was like, my dreams were shit. My every surrealness moment was just crushed. And it took everything at that moment for me not to flip the table at the Kowloon and lose my mind. But I didn't. I just kept my composure and was just like, I need to think and look at other options. I, you know, honored that you flew here from New Jersey to in, in love my story. But in my mind, I was like, if James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano. That's right. That I have something. Correct. Then I have something. Correct. So we drove, we drove him to the airport and right before he got into like, you know, go up to the, you know, check in or whatever security, he stopped dead in his tracks, swear to God and everything I love, turned around, looks at me and goes, come here. And he goes, you know what, what I said earlier about fate and destiny. He's like, I should have never said that to you. I was wrong. He's like, I just want to say that to you. He ends up passing away like that the next year, you know, um, Imagine that. I'll never forget. He, he he thought about it before he walked away and was like, I'm an asshole. And I should have never said that to that guy. He turns around, he says that to me. And I was like, whoa, like, you know, my head blows up. And then it passes through the hands of Ed Bianchi, who's the director of The Wire on Showtime and a million other shows. And he wants to do the same thing. He wants to option. Everyone wants to take it from Everyone him. wants, wants to, to take it. it. Exactly. I can do this. I make it mine. I'll mm-hmm. make the money the way I want. Right. So then Maddie in the morning on Kiss 108, which is like at the time. Yeah, I know Maddie in the morning. Maddie in the morning? Yeah, of course. It's, it's dude in, you know, Boston radio and whatever. He's huge. Big, 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 big radio call. show. Yeah. I'm living at my mother's house still at the time. And he calls me up and he's like, his producer calls me, Kendra. And she says, 
Maddie wants you on. She wants to know why James Gandolfini was here because it was in the Herald. Like they took pitches and they have pitches in the Boston Herald of me and Gandolfini potentially buying oxymorons. Like, and, and what happened? So I go in and Maddie in the morning, I tell him the story that I'm telling you right now. Like he came, he wanted it. I said, no. And they like, you said no to James. Yeah. And Maddie kept me on for his producer said for longer than anyone's ever, he's ever had anybody on his like morning show and just let me go without cracking a joke or anything. Right. And from that moment, what happened was I was living in the North end where all the Italians were. And I realized, wait, all these Italian dudes, they pay guys that are on the Sopranos, not Gandolfini, but like Santorelli and stuff. They pay them thousands of dollars to come and do an appearance at their restaurant. So right. all these guys are interested in my movie and I end up getting them all to all these restaurant owners that end up be connected to my father, who I never knew. All these crazy things start to fall into place for me and they all invest 10 grand, 20 grand. And I end up raising 150 grand in cash to shoot the movie. Okay. Which is not a I'm lot. In Vegas, not a lot, but I'm in Vegas and I'm like, I need a name to be in the movie besides all the local people I got and to play this crazy character. So I get this kid, Forrest Griffin, who's a UFC fighter at the time on board. Okay. Two weeks after I get Forrest on board, he wins the light heavyweight title against Rampage Jackson. And I go from talking to Forrest on the phone to talking to his manager who wants 30 grand a week that I don't have. Mm. The former heavyweight champion of UFC, Tim Sylvia, reaches out to me and is like, hey, I heard what happened. I'm actually from Maine, from New England. I had a football scholarship. I got hooked on Oxy. Wow. And I wanted to do a movie with you, and I'll fly out on my own dime. Wow. So so I end up getting the former heavyweight champion of the UFC, who's got a, an, a cult audience for sure, to come out and play this role. And he kills it in the movie. It's the most non-gimmicky UFC fighter in a movie you'll ever see. I promise you that. Wow. And so, not, so now I got 150 grand cash. I got a UFC fighter. I also have a red camera, which nobody was shooting on. I understood the red camera at the time, which was the equivalent to shooting on film without having film, which is okay. expensive. Right. Okay. And a yeah. DP that knew what he was doing and owned this camera. But the city, because of what I was doing, because I was telling that I went to everybody and I said, I am trying to tell my story and turn my life around. Oxycontin now at this point in 2010 has killed so many people and it's now a a red alert, red alert, the pharmacies. I My movie isn't glamorizing this stuff. I'm showing you the grittiest, rawest death and collateral damage that this stuff is causing. Mm. And I want this to change people's lives and deter future generations from going down my path. Mm. What can you do for me? I got Boston police cars, state police helicopters, the DEA in my movie playing DEA agents with their real gun. I literally had the DEA doing a, a raid scene in my movie with their guns that I don't even know how legal this is, like kicking a door open and in doing racings with their real, you know, semi-automatic weapons. Right, right. That I, and their real uniforms. Uh, Bonstable County, which is down the Cape, gave me the empty jail that they had to build a new jail because they couldn't house the amount of inmates they were typically housed in down the Cape because of the opiate-related death and crimes down there. They need to build a whole new county jail. So the little county jail that they had was still sitting there. So they gave me the jail to shoot. They, I was walking around with master keys to a jail. So here I am. I was in jail. Now I have the master keys to a jail to film my movie about this chapter of my life. Wow. And so the equity that I raised, over a million easily, over a million dollars in equity easily. When you watch Oxymorons and you know the budget now, 
And at first I didn't tell people the budget. I let people, you know, use their mind of their own. Right. But when you watch it, you will not think a hundred, you'd be like, it's impossible to shoot in this many locations, mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. But so when I say that everybody stepped up to back me on this movie because of what it was, everybody stepped up. Do you, do you think that was because of the intention? Or do I you think, think, yeah. So I had, so I had a friend that became a friend of mine that was a journalist. So I, I'm strategic in what I do. Yeah. So when I would go to these places, I would like, the, like to the sheriff. So in Massachusetts, sheriffs run the jails. So like in Florida, if you drive by a sheriff speeding, he can pull you over and arrest you. If you drive by a sheriff here, you can flip him off and he can't do nothing. He's a correctional officer or the actual sheriff is the warden of the jail here. It's different here. Okay. Police are police. Sheriff departments run the county jails. So I went to see the superintendent, which is like one under the sheriff in Bonneville County. And when I did so to get the jail, the chances of them giving me this jail was like, I was rolling the dice. I'm like, they're not going to give me that. I just wanted to use a section of it, never mind the whole deal. <laughs> right. And I would, but I would bring my journalist friend who was known and he, he wrote for the Phoenix. Remember, I don't know if you remember the Boston Yeah, of course. Phoenix. The Phoenix. Yeah. The Boston, yeah. So he wrote the first story on me and everything when I was pre movie, like when I was like trying to get it off the ground and I would, and he would come with his notebook at the time and he'd have his notes and he'd, and I'd be, this is my friend. He's a journalist for the Phoenix. He's writing the story about me. So nobody wanted to say no to me because they didn't want somebody right. writing right. The, the Phoenix that, right. you know, the, this guy is trying to turn his life around. He wrote a screenplay that James Gandolfini want. And all those things are already there. So I had like a, like a mini press kit say at the time of like things to back, like why we should make this movie. And um, I mean, just like when I say all the pieces fell into place, the moon, the stars aligned, God, whatever yeah. you believe, yeah. all that you want, it all came together for me and my dreams came true. And, I was selling out showcase cinemas, a local company, which is owned by the Redstones, who own Paramount, you know, it's the parent company of Paramount, Viacom and all that. Yep. They gave me all, they, they gave me a test screening in Revere yep. on Route 1, and I sold out a whole weekend, uh, five shows on a Saturday, five shows on a Sunday. So then they gave me all their theaters in the state for a week, and I was the uh, number two grossing movie for two weeks against 18 studio films in Massachusetts. Wow. So, so all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all these all these things came together for you. Good God. So what are you doing now, Johnny Hickey? I'm a full-time filmmaker. This, that's what I do now. I make movies. I make, you know, I work on different projects, um, you know, a lot of horror movies and stuff just to keep the income going. But I, yeah, you like the horror. all of my films as writer-director um, are all genre-driven to fight the drug epidemic. So my most recent film that came out during COVID. So we had, we won a bunch of awards called Habitual. It's a psychological drug horror about fentanyl because now fentanyl is obviously the, the big, that's the demon. new one. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, it's killing a hundred, it's killing, killing a hundred. Imagine, imagine if an airplane crashed every day in, in Massachusetts. I mean, no, I, I, I know two people already. I know two, right. two people already. So if a plane crashed every day, that would be headline news. Of course. In America, about 190 to 200 people die a day from fentanyl overdoses. So that's the equivalent to a jet crashing every friggin' day and no one says nothing about it. I mean, people do like the people that care, but like there's a blind eye to it, you know? And there's a lot of distractions where you don't have to uh, focus on that. We the, the distractions are just getting bigger and bigger and people love staring at the big glossy. Oh, you see what happened? Oh, aliens walking in malls and wars and all the dumbing stuff. down. They're dumbing down the population and 
you know, when I hear you talk and I see the people that you're connected to and I see you and Joe and I know, and I know Rob Schneider, I don't know him personally, but I know him, my editor in LA. So the yeah. guy that went out with my, so the guy that's Rob's editor now, Paul yep. Buell, does all the Sugar Studios, does all Rob's stuff. He was from South Boston. He traveled with me to LA and stayed there with oxymorons. Mm. So oxymorons brought him to LA and he stayed there and became a union editor and is like doing big movies now and like doing everybody's stuff. So there's all these crazy things that came from this in, in a very good way. But when I hear you guys speak up and, and talk about these things, so many people around me after COVID, I realized idiots and I didn't realize how many idiots were around me. And it's like, you know, there's conspiracy theories and there's rabbit holes, of course. But then there's things that are just so in your face. It's like, how can you ignore this? How can you ignore that? You know, when the vaccine thing came out and everyone's like, well, it's F someone literally says to me, well, it's FDA approved. And I'm uh. like, they, they approved Oxycontin, you know? And then I started, you know, not until COVID, though, did I go down the food rabbit hole. Did I start oh, researching yes. what, what I've been giving my daughter all these years yes. in cereal? Yes. And like ignorant and upset I am with myself for not realizing how much bigger the picture is than just the pharmaceutical drug itself. And then I watched the rehab facilities, the rehab centers where people are supposed to go and get clean off of drugs and alcohol. Now you cannot even open a rehab facility in Massachusetts and many other states, pretty much everywhere because they've lobbied so much without giving Suboxone or one of these other recovery drugs that are still narcotics, Still, I mean, not like Suboxone, for instance, tricks your brain into thinking you're high and literally blocks your, your receptors in your brain, right? So you have to offer this stuff to people now in order for them to rehabilitate. Now you go to jail and you get that stuff. So even if you're not on drugs, you're going to jail, you're like, oh, I might as well just get high while I'm in here. And you come out the revolving door into Methanol Mile, which is my newest film that I've, I've been working on that's in post-production right now. And they just spit you out into these you know, recovery drugs, these, you know, that just dumb down the population, weaken everybody. Look at look at the people that have been dumbed down. It's not just street criminals like me, police officers, firefighters, everybody, everybody, everybody. 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 And then if you follow the money, the companies that are being sued in, you know, like Purdue owes Massachusetts not like a billion dollars, nine hundred million dollars roughly is like their their tax for killing millions of people. Right, like yeah, it would tax you. Right, for killing everybody. It, 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 that's oh, like you know, no that's, one's in jail, but right, it's like the drug companies, and it's like even the ones that even made the the, the shot. It's they were sued before this even happened for billions, trillions, and that's what people don't understand. A billion dollars to them is a snot rocket. So if I go, we're gonna make forty trillion, we're gonna get caught, then they're gonna sue us, and we'll. So for a billion dollars, we'll make $20 trillion. And who cares of the cost? I always say this, the most frightening thing I heard from a guy that works for a vaccine company said to my face when I asked him, what about the bad side effects? And he thought for a second, he went, the good outweighs the bad. And what that statement means is not the good as far as people are going to be helped. What that means is they're going to make so much profit, so much profit. It doesn't matter the three people that died or the people nope. that can't walk anymore or the people that have. And again, I'm not saying that's what happened, but there's common sense and there's whatever you believe. 
So collateral damage. It's but it's true. I mean, I, and I and I'll say it like it's just, it's in your face. Like the, the whole vaccine thing's insane. I mean, vaccines in general are insane. When you look at the you when you look at the, the chicken pox, like they want to give my daughter a chicken pox yes. vaccine. I'm, why? I'm like why? my mother put with the kids that had chicken pox to catch it. And yes. that was it. Why am I? Yeah. You I'm itched like, for four days and you had a couple scabs. It's over. One of the things I tell the parents that have debates with me when I have like my parental debates with friends that have kids or whatever is next time the doctor, that's fine. You want to trust your doctor or the nurse practitioner now because you don't even see the doctor. That's right. Ask them to name five of the ingredients in the vaccine that they're about to stick in your baby. Name yeah. five of them. And if they can name five of the ingredients, then go ahead, let them do it. Right. And if they can't, Think about it. Think about that. Think Nobody about that. knows what's in it. And that's that's the scary part of society. But I'll tell you what, Johnny Hickey, I thank God there's guys like you. There's guys like you. There's not a lot. There's guys far like you. Between. We're, far, we're far and few between, Jim. And that's why I reached out to you. I appreciate I heard it. you talk. And I heard, you know, Rob talk. And I seen the guys that you – and it and especially at y'all level of, like, success. And even mine, you know, I'm more, I have more of a cult following and stuff. But you – come you know such a long way and i see other friends of mine that are pretty big celebrities out there that i'm connected to and they're petrified to, i know what they're thinking they're petrified they're, they're cowards and they're petrified to speak up because i want to lose it and it's like what is it all worth if you're going to lose everything anyways you're going to your children are going to lose everything you know Every, for this, everything, everything for money it's, it's serious yes Yes, I do think we're in the, in the new phase of life where truth, uh, common sense, uh, spirituality, faith is going to over overcome it all. I really do. I think too many people are waking up. Too many. I love seeing young people um, tapping into real lifestyles, real life, and getting off the grid and walking away from it all. But. Um, this was, this was, I really, this was a great hang. I'd love to see, are you Boston or are you in LA? I'm both, so I'm in Boston. So I was in LA before COVID Then COVID happened and I got out of LA. Obviously I was like, I ended up in Miami for the majority of COVID um, where things were like normal. Yeah. And now back in Boston doing things here, I just filmed Methadone Mile, which is another opiate crime. It's about where we are now. Yep. And it's about the companies that are giving these, you know, rehabilitation drugs that are the same people that were invested in the drug that caused the problem in the first place. And to kind of show these things that are popping up in cities like Boston never had, you know, a five block radius of homeless people living in tents that yep. didn't exist here. And, and now it does. So that's, I'm constantly fighting things. I'm in Boston cause I'm just strongest here right now, yep. but I frequent back and forth to LA. I'm by coastal. I'm there to do my post-production, the networking and all the, you know, all the games you got to play to, to get the distribution and stuff like that. But, but overall I'm, you know, mostly in Boston now. Well, I appreciate you, man. I really appreciate that you, that you reached out and what you're trying to do and what you are doing. Uh, I think you're, I mean, we need guys like you to be inspirational because you're the real deal. I mean, you really, you lived it. You're in it. You're still in it. So I let keep in touch, please. Let's keep in touch the way we keep in touch. 100%. And when you come to Boston, I'll definitely come see you. I'll come check you out. We'll hang out. That sounds sure. good. I know you got a day, you got a day coming up to Schubert or something, right? I think I do, but I, don't, I think it's April. It's down the road. Yeah, it's April. Yeah, yeah, it's April. If you're around, that'd be great. I'd love to. We'll have a, whatever it is. 
even at coffee, whatever, hang out, dinner. It sounds good, Johnny. I appreciate you, brother. Yeah. And I appreciate you. Keep fighting. I will. You too, Johnny. Don't be scared. I appreciate you, man, so much. We all do. Anyone that thinks like us, we... Guys like you, we we appreciate it so much. It means it means the world to change the world. You as 100%. well. You as well, bro. All right, brother. Take care, Johnny Hickey, everyone. Um, I think his story is enough to explain everything. And those are, I'm telling you, guys, guys like Johnny, are are those are the guys that uh, those are warriors. I consider that 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 is a. That's a life warrior right there. There's not a whole lot of them. There's guys that have been in that have been in wars. There's guys that have been through this. But Johnny Hickey, there was so much of that conversation that I thought was so powerful. The the besides the even overcoming and being in that bed when he's with Galdafini and he knows this is, he knows he's got something that's going to change people's lives. He knows that even more, it may heal, which is more important, more, it's going to heal humanity more than a lot of doctors, more than a lot of psychiatrists, more than a lot of things out there. And he's got the biggest star in the world sitting next right there going I want it but it's mine it's it's and he held his ground and cuz he knew in his instinct he knew in his heart he knew in his spirit this was bigger than just hey I'm connected to a big star really beautiful story man check out John Hickey's films we all know when people have gone through exactly what he was talking about and what they're going through now I know two, and I can honestly say even three people now that have lost uh, a child or a young adult to fentanyl. So, you know, before you get hopped up and caught up in whatever new media, new entertainment, new thing they're trying to get you spun around and crazy in, realize that the harsh reality of life is um, they're going to come at you real hard. And thank God there's guys like Johnny Hickey out there that can met the devil, hung out with the devil, knows all his tricks, and knows how to show you and prepare for them and be aware of them. So with that said, thank you. And thanks to our guest, Johnny Hickey, for stopping on the Bruniverse. And I want to thank all of you for everything you do. And um, much love to you guys out there. You're going to need it. We all need it. Don't ever forget that. Keep it simple. Simple life. This ain't morally right. This ain't spiritually right. Keep far away from it. It ain't good for you. Have a good one. Jim Brewer, and I got my own Patreon page, and hopefully you'll check it out. Live comedy concert streamed once a month. Early access to the Bruniverse podcast every single week, and have bonus footage and bonus segments. I promise you I'm not going to let you down. Go check out my official Jim Brewer Patreon page, and I'll see you there.